If you came in the middle door, you would find that there was a stool there in the middle, and hopefully you didn't ignore it. Uh, we put those out there not to trip you, but to uh, make something obvious to you. Uh, but uh, the <clears throat> I thought about it when we had it there, that uh, some of you might have been tempted not to take it because the top said, don't do it. Um, and that some of you, you know, maybe this is some sort of test uh, and that they are, you know, trying to see if we will actually obey or whatever and the like. Uh, I'm glad that you figured out that it was okay to pick this up. We're looking this evening and we're continuing our series in uh, the one another's and uh, we've only got a few of these uh, left that I'm going to be dealing with. I keep reading through and finding more and more one another's and it's like, okay, I will leave those uh, for you to find as you go through the scripture. But I uh, wanted to go through this evening the ones that have the idea of don't do this to one another. Now, when you put in a statement of don't do something, that just kind of incites something in us to want to do it. Uh, I was thinking about uh, a trip that we took one time when we were visiting a building that was uh, about seven stories high, and uh, the building, uh, we were on the top floor, and we were overlooking Washington, D.C., and then <clears throat> there was a sign on one of the doors that says, do not enter. Guess what? I lost two young men that said, it said, do not enter, so we, we figured we were in this building, and they went in, and they went down the floors uh, to get to the first floor and doing it, but it was because it said, do not enter. I mean, if there had been just nothing there, I think they would have, you know, ignored everything, but to them, that was, you know, something that was uh, very interesting for them to do, but uh, for many of us, when we see a, a, a statement forbidding something, it's something that we want to do, but in the cases of just even looking through these here this evening, I don't think these are ones that we would want to really do. We're understanding the, the fact that these are not good things uh, for us to be in our helping of one another. And as we looked at last week, the encouraging of one another and the edifying of one another, we really don't want to be doing these things. And so we've got uh, these four passages that uh, we have uh, statements of things that we're not supposed to. Uh, to be doing. I want to start off in the, the passage in Galatians chapter 5. We'll just work through the list like it is on the sheet that you have there uh, and work through it here this evening. But Galatians chapter 5, we've looked at this passage in relation to some other things where it's, uh, we're told that they we're supposed to do to one another. There's several one another's in this passage uh, that uh, are there. But as you look at Galatians chapter 5, you, you find uh, this statement uh, being made in verse number 13. For brethren, you have been called into liberty. And the idea there is that you're not just free to do whatever you want, but you now, when you see that term liberty in the scripture in the New Testament, it's referring to this, that you now have freedom to do what is right. Okay, that's the idea. You have liberty. Uh, before you were saved, as the scripture says, you were a slave to your own flesh nature. You answered the call of the, the prince of the air. Uh, you 
were a slave to the course of this age, Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 tells us. Uh, we really did whatever our own flesh in the world and Satan called us to do. We had no freedom. We were slaves. But in Christ, there's this new freedom to do what's right. You can do things that are right. You have liberty to be able to do this. But it says this, only use not your liberty for an occasion to the flesh, but by love serve one another. And we went through this passage that we're supposed to sacrifice, to be selfless towards one another uh, in our service. For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. And you go, what does he mean by the, all the law is covered in this? If you look at the Ten Commandments, and uh, you look at that list, it starts off with the first four, uh, just simply declaring our actions towards God and really emphasizing love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and strength, uh, all of your being. You serve God and love him. But in the last six, it's love your neighbor. You know, you don't kill your neighbor. You go, why? Because that's bad. You don't steal from him. Why? Because that's bad. And so the understanding is, is that the commandments there in the last six of the Ten Commandments is just simply this, love your neighbor as yourself. I mean, you wouldn't want to be killed. You wouldn't want stuff stolen from you. You wouldn't want people to lie to you. And so this command to love is a commandment like this. But verse 15, here's the, the contrast. If you're not looking like one who is loving others as yourself, this is what it's going to look like. But if you bite and devour one another, take heed that ye be not consumed one of another. What you begin to find is that uh, when individuals aren't getting along with one another, they start to bite one another, snap at one another. And in the end, when you have something biting something else, it's never pretty. I, I, when I think of this passage, I think of, uh, for some of you, the older, the generation, uh, I think of Mutual of uh, Omaha. Most people didn't have Mutual Omaha Assurance, but they might have. But you might have watched a program when you were younger where it was the wildlife of Mutual of Omaha, and they would show the animals chasing one another. And I, I love watching animals. Until you get to the point where, you know, you know, the reality of life is there. But, you know, the lion is going across the wherever it's at, the Serengeti, and you have these antelopes that are there, and one of them finally gets caught, and the, the, the lions gather around and just begin to tear it apart. And you're just like, ooh, this isn't, this isn't pretty at all. And you're just kind of going, there is no way of getting that animal back together again. Damage has been done that's irreparable. And for us as Christians, uh, what we can sometimes do in our, if we're not loving one another, if we're not being selfless towards one another, if we're promoting self, what are we going to be doing? We're going to be tearing others down. Uh, it can be through attitudes, it can be through actions, it can be through words, but if we're going to bite and devour one another, the end result is not going to be pretty it'll be hurtful. And, and in many cases, it's hard to piece together what has been torn off and torn apart. 
For us, uh, the, the understanding, I think we, we understand if we think of it that way, is that, that we can, uh, by our words and actions, if we don't like someone or we don't care for them as we should, uh, we could do irreparable damage to who they are, what they're like, and even damage the body of Christ if we let our tongue go uncontrolled. I mean, we don't have the passage here, but James chapter 3 is really a great passage to be reminded of this, that our tongue is uh, a dangerous thing. In fact, it says this, it's set on fire of hell. And you think about when you have something set on fire, the damage is irreparable. And so for us, this is a warning to be reminded that our tongue and our mouth can be something that is destructive and we need to as it says here, don't do it. Don't devour one another. But you go down further in this passage, in the passages we've already talked about a couple weeks ago, this is the passage that talks about the works of the flesh, and it gives us a big long list of what the works of the flesh are like. If you are trying to understand what it was like for you to live in the past, and if you are presently living like you're in the past, You've got the works of the flesh. Those are listed in verse number 19, 20, 21. Uh, you go through those things and you find uh, those different passions that are there if we're living like the old, the old person that we were before salvation. But verse 22 says this, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. You're not going to find in the Scripture where you go through and it says, don't love. No. Don't be at peace with one another. Be short-fused with other people. It doesn't say any of those things. There's no law in our Bible against these things because these are the things that reflect the character of Christ. They're a reflection of, as you see here, it's a fruit of the Spirit. It's a reflection of God, the Holy Spirit, and what He's like. But then you get to verse number 24. It says this, And they that are Christ's, have crucified the flesh with the affections and the lusts. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. If you are a saved individual, you were put to death on the cross. You were in union with Christ, and so you died to sin. You died to the flesh. And so, if that's the case, Jesus was, once, uh, was raised also, so you are raised to newness of life. A different kind of life than being uh, what you were before. But verse 26 says this, Let us not be desirous of vainglory, provoking one another, envying one another. I mean, this is under the section where we just simply say this, don't envy one another. Do you realize that uh, all of us in, in uh, this church have something that other people will probably go, I wish I had that all of us and what you could have in a congregation like this is that at times uh and being in close proximity to one another and being around one another there might be uh some elements where in your own soul that flesh nature rises up and kind of goes why do they have that or why do they have those things or why do they have that position or why do they have that opportunity i ought to have those things I mean, the scripture here simply describes it. This is vain glory. 
you know, empty glory. We think if we had those things, if we were the spotlight of attention or we were the ones capable of doing things, that we would get, you know, something that we wanted. It appeals to our pride. But what oftentimes happens is this, is that when we uh, are desiring something else that somebody else has, uh, the result is this, is that you provoke or envy one another. The idea of provoking there is just simply prodding people, irritating them. I mean, when you're envious of somebody, you don't treat them nicely. You go, case in point. Uh, how about Joseph? Okay. Remember the story of Joseph? We, we studied that a couple weeks ago on Sunday morning. He has something that the other brothers want or think that they're deserving of because they're older. Think about uh, the fact that Joseph was number 11 in line in that family uh, of brothers, and yet he is getting a garment that kind of symbolizes the fact that he's the leader of the family. He is the one that the father has chosen to kind of be responsible. And the brothers, it says that they cannot put up with him. They envy him from that point on when that happens. And even with the stories where Joseph is given a grand opportunity, though he did not seek it, where God gave to him uh, these visions, or excuse me, not visions, dreams that he had that simply stated what the future of them was, they're angry at him and could not speak peaceably to him. See, this is the opposite when you think about uh, what uh, if we're envying one another, there's a lack of contentment. That we're satisfied with the things that God has given to us. It was a statement, and I can't remember if it was this Sunday or the, the previous Sunday, and put quotes on the screen and they're in your bulletin, but uh, the statement made by Matthew Henry, it was today, if I remember correctly. But the statement is this, it's not that poverty is the problem, it's what? It's us being discontented. We're not content with what we've been given. If we would just simply have a, an understanding of who God is and that He gives us every good and perfect gift, He gives us everything that we need and not anything more, and we're satisfied with that, then we're not looking at others and their lands and gold and going, I wish I had those things. It would be better for me. Why did that person get it? If we're content with the things that we have been given by God, if we've got a godly perspective that he's in charge and he's the one who is giving us what we have and what we don't have, then we won't be spending our time envying other people and eventually that just coming out in bitterness and activity against that individual thus bringing destruction to the body of christ and so as believers uh this challenge don't envy one another is really coming down to the fact of uh, not just simply don't envy one another it's be content with the things that you have and if that's the case then you're not going to be envious of other believers and then bringing destruction to the body of christ so don't devour one another okay don't go about fighting chewing each other up don't envy one another and then you have this don't slander one another 
This passage in James chapter 4, and I'm going to turn to it, just before it, what comes in that passage is very important. In fact, it's a passage that's oftentimes called uh, the revival passage of the New Testament. I didn't write it down here or put it down here just because of space, but before this you find that there is a statement about what's going on in this church that James is writing to, the brother of Christ. And he's making this statement, from whence come wars and fightings among you? Come they not hence of your member, or not hence even of your own lust that war in your members? Ye lust and ye have not, ye kill and desire to have and cannot obtain. Ye fight and war, yet ye have not, because ye ask not. Ye ask and receive not, because ye ask amiss that ye may consume it upon your own lust. Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that friendship to the world is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. I mean, just, he's writing this to a church body. You know, it's the revival passage, which we'll read here in a second, but some have called this the war passage. I mean, people are warring at one another and they're fellow believers. And the Lord goes, okay, what's the solution for this? You think that the Scripture saith in vain, the Spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth the envy? Do you think that the Spirit that we've been given, the Holy Spirit, is envious and telling us to be envious? I don't think so. Verse 6, but he giveth more grace. Wherefore he saith, and this is a quote of the Old Testament, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. So if that's what the Scripture says in the Old Testament, here's what we ought to do. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners. Purify your hearts, ye double-minded. Be afflicted and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, your joy to heaviness. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he shall lift you up. So if you find yourself where you're not supposed to be at, where you realize you have gone far beyond what you're supposed to be doing, the answer for you is not to reform yourself or anything like this. It's just simply this, that you fall in the mercy of God, humble yourself and go, I need God, and you draw nigh to Him. And what you find is this, is that He'll draw nigh to you. I mean, the distance between you and God is not because of God, it's because of you. And for the passage here, it's just reminding us of this, but the end statement there is key in understanding this do not that comes up right afterwards. Humble yourself. Okay, what's this? Have a right opinion of yourself. You go, what, what does that mean? You're not as high as you think you are. In fact, you're really, really low. You go, why? As the Apostle Paul uh, quoted about himself that God had come to save him. The chief of sinners. I mean, he recognized himself just as bad a sinner as everybody else. Uh, and that's what led him to Christ, is that he recognized that he wasn't better by his own righteousness and the like, but he was one who humbled himself and God was able to exalt him and use him. So it is in the Christian life. There are times where we're far from God. And if we just simply would swallow our pride, draw nigh to God, confess our sins, he will be able to lift us up. 
And you can kind of find out whether or not you've truly humbled yourself and you're in a right position to God, that you're not the center of the universe, you're not sitting on the throne of your life. God is, well, you can find an understanding of what that doesn't look like in verse number 11, where it says this, speak not evil one of another brethren. He that speaketh evil of his brother and judges his brother speaketh evil of the law and judgeth the law. But if thou judge the law, thou art not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. Who art thou that judgest one another? It just simply says this, do you still think you're in God's place, that you are an exalted individual, you can do whatever you want to do, that you have rights that you can claim that aren't yours, that you're in the position of God? Well, if you're like that, what you're going to do is slander other individuals. You know what's slander? Slander is just spoken statement that aren't true or shade in a way that is not putting a person in right light. If you're trying to exalt yourself, you have to do what? You have to cut others down. You have to climb on their backs uh, uh, to lift yourself up. And so what slander just simply is this, is it's a a revelation that we've got an exalted idea of who we are, the position that we have. If, If you are really humbled under the hand of the Lord, You've really confessed your sin and drawn nigh to God. You're not going to go around and point at others and go, there's something wrong with you, and this is not right in your life, and this is not good. You're not going to spend your time doing that. You're going to be looking at your own life and going, I'm not quite where I need to be at. In fact, I'm far from what I should be. And so the person who has come to a right conclusion about who they are, they've humbled themselves this shouldn't be a problem. What this, this is kind of a, this do not slander one another. It's kind of a litmus test on whether or not you're right with God. You can figure this out. If you, you, you have to slander and make up stuff or say hurtful things about other individuals, it's just an indicator that you're probably not in the right frame of reference to your God. You've not humbled yourself. That's why you have the slandering that goes on. Or in the beginning of this passage in James chapter 4, the wars that are going on, the fights that are going on. And so it just simply says this, don't slander one another. And if you are, then it's just simply, it's not the other person that's at fault, it's you that's at fault. Get right with God. Get right with God. But the last passage that we have here is in the midst of a passage that we looked at on Wednesday. Uh, This is the passage we use to talk about uh, what the New Testament has to say about one uh, man by the name of Job. And what you see throughout this passage is the idea of patience. You have, uh, as we learned on Wednesday, two words for patience that take place. There's the one that's the macrothumia, the long-suffering you're willing to to hold your breath longer under a situation or individual that that's the word for patience that we see in verse 7 right on through verse 10 it says this be patient therefore brethren under the coming of the lord behold the husbandman husbandman waiteth for the precious fruit of the earth and hath long patience for it until he receiveth the early and latter rain be also patient 
Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord draweth nigh. And then the statement that we're looking at, grudge not one against another, brethren, lest ye be condemned. Behold, the judge standeth before the door. And you say, okay, so why is this statement, grudge not, and what does it actually mean? To put it in the terms that we have there is probably a good statement. Don't grumble to one another. It's a word that's translated elsewhere in our Bible, grumble or complain. And what it's just simply saying is this, is that what believers should not be doing is stirring up an attitude in other individuals that's not right. Uh, for instance, as the, the illustration is given here, verse 7, it talks about an individual who plants a crop. Can a, a farmer do anything to make the crop grow faster? I mean, you go, well, he can fertilize it, maybe put oh, water on it. But think about in this culture, was there anything that they could do uh, to make it grow faster? They had to wait the process of time, the rain to happen, the germination process, and everything else to take place. You had a certain time that you had to wait. You had to be what? Patient. You couldn't do anything about the process. You couldn't do anything about it. But it wasn't worth wasting energy and going, well, you know, I'm going to fret about this and not handle this very well while I'm waiting for the crop to grow. No, the farmer is a picture of patience. He's at the mercy of what's going on. He can't do anything about it. And so in his having to wait he's got long suffering he's got long patience he's not complaining about stuff that he can do nothing about you know what we oftentimes do and it's so easy for us to fall into you say it's not for me it is for all of us it's easy for us to complain about stuff that we can do nothing about no traffic's not going fast enough you know we complain about this uh, or we have situations that come up and we complain about it i mean you think about what happened the nation of israel uh, in the book of exodus right on through deuteronomy are a i don't want to say a wonderful picture a good well, bad example okay i guess we, we could put it that way of individuals who are constantly complaining about stuff that nothing can be done about you know they're complaining we don't have fresh fruits and vegetables like we had back in egypt you're like well, wait a second you were slaves in egypt but they're they're upset by this uh, they don't recognize the fact that they are being taken care of that they have water and food every day right on their doorstep but there's a lot of things they complain about and what you find oftentimes in that complaining it's a few individuals that start it yeah, you have the story of individuals like uh, Korah who complain about the leadership of 
Moses. And they start the process. And it goes from this small group of a a few men to a group of 50 to a group of 250 until you've got the nation that's now risen up against Moses. And they're wanting to get rid of Moses as the leader, but they really can't do anything about it. You go, why? Because the Lord's the one who made Moses the leader. But what they're going to do is complain about him. And really, in complaining about Moses, who are they complaining about? They're complaining about God, ultimately. See, when we complain to one another, what we're just simply saying is we don't like what God has done. You go, really? Look at the end of the verse in verse number 9. Grudge not against one another, brethren, lest ye be condemned. Behold, the judge standeth before the door. Who's the judge? It's God. And what is it meaning that he's the judge? Understand, he's the one that has given us everything. And when we complain, what are we saying? We don't like what the ultimate judge has given to us in the situation. And so what do we do? We voice our opinion about things that aren't going to change, that can't be fixed, but really are a complaint against God going, I can't believe you've done this to me. And what happens in a congregation of individuals like this or in other congregations when you have individuals who are complaining about things that can't be changed, it's something that's just the part of the life of the church, and they start complaining, it can be the very thing that leads to the destruction of that church. We have a few individuals that are complaining and then a larger number of people complaining and a greater number of people that are suddenly influenced by this and suddenly you have a whole congregation. And it happens, sadly. You can look around uh, uh, the scenes uh, of churches uh, across the land uh, where you had individuals who complained and it became an outright rebellion and destruction to church ministries around the region and so the statement here is stop complaining you go why because much of what we're complaining about is stuff that god's given to us the situation we're in god's given it to us uh, what we're where we're at god's put us there what can we do about it nothing so is it really worth wasting energy about no not really but we do it's in our human nature our flesh nature to complain we like to complain and it gives us something to do when we have nothing else to do. But the fact is, is it can be destructive because what it begins to do in our own soul is cause us to rise up against the things that God has given and that God has placed us in. And so uh, the, the statement, if you're not being patient, you're going to be what? Complaining. And so this is another one of those tests. If you're complaining about things, then you don't have the patience you should have. You aren't enduring long like you should be. It's long-suffering and enduring through difficult circumstances. Or like Job, uh, where you're suffering affliction and you're bearing up underneath this in an endurance race, uh, not complaining. And you think about the nation of Israel, they eventually got themselves into a marathon. You know what I mean? They spent 40 years wandering in a wilderness. 
And that's going to take some endurance to go underneath. It was rightful punishment for them. They had uh, denied the fact that God could help them, and God just said, okay, well, I'll let you wander for 40 years until we get a generation that believes this can happen. But you're going to wander. And you say, what, needed, what did those people in the nation of Israel need as they wandered the wilderness for 40 years? Patience, endurance, because this is what God had given to them. And so for us, these four things, I, I think they are ones that you know, we all recognize are probably things that we shouldn't do, but the fact is, is sometimes we just have to remind ourselves, don't do it. Just don't, don't you know, and it's one way, don't go there, don't do this. And you say, why? Because it has an effect on other people. And if it affects other people, then you're doing damage to the body of Christ, which we've gathered to do uh, to help one another and thus ruin the testimony of Christ if we allow these things to go unchecked, unhindered. And so it's just good for us to have reminders like this. Don't do these things. So you've got the list there. Every once in a while, it's not the one that you'll go to often, but you ought to come back and just go, what, what should I not be doing, especially in the church, in the body of Christ to one another, uh, and uh, for the sake, the testimony of Jesus Christ and the building up of others, we should be not doing these things. Lord, we thank you for reminders. We don't like being told no. Our flesh rises up, but may we be humble under your hand. May we be content with such things that you have. May we be excited when others are doing well and, and we're satisfied with where we're at. We don't have pride that uh, requires us to tear down other individuals. So we look at a list like this. May Once again, we come back to the overriding principle and the, the one another's here that we should love one another, that there is a selflessness that's a part of our ministry to one another a sacrifice that is uh, seen and displays uh, towards one another, and that these things don't crop up in a congregation of believers here or in other churches uh, that uh, we might uh, be a part of uh, in the future, that we would not be doing these things that would be hurtful and destructive to the church. So we love you, Lord. We thank you for giving us these reminders. May we live uh, out uh, what your son uh, was like, what the Spirit can empower us to do. In this we pray in Christ's name. Amen.